It's your time to Ed Up with America's leading higher education podcast network, the Ed Up Experience, where we make education your business. This is Ed Up Legal with your host, Patty Roberts. She's Dean at St. Mary's School of Law, and she's going to be leading conversations about legal education in today's world. Now let's hear from your host, Patty Roberts. Welcome to Ed Up Legal. This is Patty Roberts from St. Mary's University School of Law. Today we have with us Howard Katz. He is Cleveland Marshall College of Law's first legal educator in residence. Uh, he's a former visiting professor at Cleveland Marshall. And as a legal educator in residence, I'd love to start with what it is you do to provide ongoing advice to Dean Fisher, faculty, and staff. Well, um, thanks for having me, and uh, it's a pleasure to be with you today. As a legal educator in residence, uh, I guess you could say I'm a special advisor to the dean and faculty, which theoretically means I'm giving special advice. Uh, Whether that's true or not, I'll let the dean and the faculty decide. Um, I'm involved in a variety of things we were doing at the school. Uh, One major thing is a strategic plan that we did several years ago and are now updating. Um, I am sort of an internal management consultant. So anything that comes up that either I see or the Dean sees or someone raises a question, um, someone will say to me, hey, you've taught at several different schools. You've been an administrator at several different schools. Uh, What do you think about this? And so I have no line responsibility, which is great. I used to be the chief academic officer of one school and assistant and associate deans at other schools. It's nice to not have line responsibility, but I have input. Uh, I'm actively involved with our academic support program. I have a theory for how I teach legal analysis in first year courses that I put into an article, uh, which I call tongue in cheek, the unified field theory of legal analysis. And so I participate in some of the academic support sessions, which gets me involved with some of the students. And then I do other things. I'm on a couple of the committees. I'm on the teaching committee. Um, I've given talks to adjuncts about teaching methods. So just a variety of things. And I, having taught at the school before and my father having gone to the school, um, I have somewhat of a connection and an affinity for the school. And when I moved back to Cleveland for family reasons a few years ago, it was kind of a natural thing to connect back up uh, at Cleveland State. Well, that's great. It's a very interesting job description, and um, you're right. It's it's great that you get to utilize your expertise and and brainstorm with uh, with the leaders of the law school without um, them coming after you with pitchforks if it doesn't go well. <laughs> um, and you graduated uh, from Harvard Law School in 1977. And let me just ask, um, as we start to talk about your advice on teaching, because I know you've done a lot of advising on teaching and you've written a book on strategies and techniques of law school teaching, what have you seen as the biggest differences since your own law school experience? Well, my own law school experience was, um, first of all, we had no idea what was going on. We just sort of read the next 20 pages Uh, And one of the things I tell new professors is be very transparent, particularly in terms of your expectations and particularly in terms of 
where you're going and how the course fits together. Um, we almost, I remember a couple times being with fellow students where we actually went and talked to a couple of professors. Um, the vast majority of my colleagues probably never set foot in a faculty member's office until they were in their third year writing a third year research paper. Um, you know, it was back then, it was pretty much very traditional, very Socratic, and students either figured it out or they didn't figure it out. And that is changing. I can't say how fast or how slow. Um, I think in the last several years, there's a lot of momentum to modify the way that we educate the next generation of lawyers and professors being more available to students, professors being more transparent, particularly about expectations. Uh, we had one exam a semester, or in the case of two of my year-long courses, one exam for the entire year. Oh, that's uh, horrible. <laughs> yes, and those were, even though I loved one of those courses, those were my two worst grades in law school. So uh, I guess I'm somewhat sympathetic to students who, who, who are looking to get some guidance along the way. So, you know, when I work with new professors, which I love doing, I mean, I, I, I've been at the last four or five new law teachers workshops for the ALS. We just did two webinars, uh, the new law teacher section of ALS. Um, one on exam construction, one on casebook selection. Um, I mentor some newer professors if after a conference they get in touch with me. And you know, I tell them, I tell them a few things uh, that come out of the book. Uh, just as a parenthetical, the book, my co-author is now a colleague of mine. Um, I was actually a an adjunct and then was leaving Cleveland and brought Kevin into full-time teaching to replace me teaching constitutional law. Um, and he's won the teaching of the year award several times. So I'm very proud of the fact that I brought him in, but he is an elementary school classmate, a friend of mine. We've known each other since elementary school. Our fathers rode the rapid transit downtown together. They were both attorneys. And I think that's a record in legal education. I have never met anyone who wasn't a re relative who has co-authored a book with someone they've known since elementary school. Um, and I brought him in to help me write the book. And also because at the time I was in a local government office and I, it, was, it was never gonna be the first thing on my to-do list. But one of the main things that we tried to say in the book and our mantra kind of is strategy precedes tactics. When you talk to new professors, they start thinking about, should I use a seating chart? Should I not use a seating chart? Should I do this? Should I not do that? And I think new professors think that in order to be a successful professor, you have to be kind of a type A personality and you have to get up in front of the room and kind of perform. And one of the, the points we were making in the book is that it's planning and thinking out what you're doing making conscious decisions about where you're going in the course, about being transparent about what you expect from students at the end of the course, about which of course involves giving feedback, which we talked about earlier and which 20 years ago, almost no professors did. Um, those kinds of things, we wanted to convince the people reading the book 
that if they make a series of conscious decisions, whether they agreed with our conclusion or not, but if they made a series of conscious decisions about what their course objectives were, about where they were going, about making clear to students the connections between material, it would make the life of a new professor easier. And so the primary reason we wrote the book was to make teaching easier and to give people some advice because no one told me how to teach. When I started teaching, I started teaching and about 10 or 12 years later, I thought maybe there's parts of this that aren't just me, that, that there's ways of conveying things to other people. Uh, but the other reason we wrote the book was we thought that if we could make professors better professors, we would make the student experience a better experience. So really our ultimate objective was about reaching the students at schools that we would never set foot in as much as helping professors become acclimated to being better, more comfortable professors. That's terrific. And that's an amazing ripple effect that you would have um, for every professor who uses your book to get ready to teach and, and, uh, and design their course. How wonderful that you are then impacting all the students that they touch um, over their oftentimes decades long career. Now, I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask for Kevin's full name. So your co-author? Yes, that's Kevin Francis O'Neill. And uh, as I say, he is now a colleague of mine. We actually have offices next door, next door to each other. Um, he teaches a variety of courses, including constitutional law, civil procedure, evidence, um, and is just both a wonderful person, but also a wonderful teacher and one of the most popular professors at our school and has been for years. Well, that's great. And it sounds like the two of you are, are perfect co-authors um, for, again, the book is Strategies and Techniques of Law School Teaching. You mentioned a couple of things. I mean, transparency is huge. I know I've had lots of students over the years, you know, they're very frustrated by the, the class where um, the professor doesn't cover the material they were assigned or um, it's just topical and, you know, there, there's no real detail as to when they'll get somewhere uh, or how they'll get somewhere. Um, and your strategy proceeds tactics advice makes great sense. What other sorts of things might uh, a new teacher find in the book? If I'm about to embark on my first doctrinal course teaching, um, what would you recommend? All right, well, I'll, I'll say a few things. One thing I'll say is that in addition to the, the strategies and techniques book, there, are a, there is a series of subject matter specific books that Walters Kluwer distributes free of charge on their faculty resources site that I edited and helped recruit the authors for those, for those books. Um, I talked about preparation. I talked about transparency and feedback. Um, you know, one of the things that's kind of obvious, and I thought it was obvious, I thought I was doing it, um, is letting students know that you care about their learning. And what I realized is that just being a good person or thinking you're a good person and an available person wasn't enough. And so now I tell students on the first day, I draw little stick figures on the board and I say, this class is not going to be about the professor versus the students. It is going to be the professor and the students together versus the material. And that sets a standard for me 
And it also conveys a message that I thought I was delivering. And of course, it's part of a larger lesson. We think we are delivering certain messages. We think they look at the table of contents and can figure out why acceptance comes after offer and why negligence comes after intentional torts. And unless you do what architects call wayfinding and signaling, showing, previewing material, reviewing material, situating material, showing students how material one subject connects to another, it's really important to do those sorts of things. And again, it's something I don't know how I thank, thank goodness there's no tapes of me teaching in my first few years of teaching. I think I was an okay professor. I think I was getting decent evaluations, but I've realized over time how much more conscious one has to be about doing those sorts of things, about giving feedback, in my case, in any first year, first semester course, a midterm that we spend a full day debriefing, as well as problems uh, in the book. And you know, one of the things, I mean, more and more professors are starting to do feedback and doing some of these things that I would call transparency. I start signaling what an, a final exam answer would look like the very first day and the method that I use to teach legal analysis, my so-called unified field theory is, is one way of doing that. There's many ways of doing it. But I think that one of the things that has, is a little bit lost in the discussion about modernizing or improving, whatever term you wanna use, teaching methods, of course, the goal is to give students a better education. But the other part of it, which I think we tend to not talk about enough, is that being more transparent, making more clear what our expectations are, helps the most those students who don't have access to the unwritten rules of doing law school. If you are first in family, if you are a non-traditional student, if you self-identify as someone who's an outsider to the law school process, you aren't plugged in to the older relative or to the 3L who can tell you how to navigate the first year. It therefore is partly incumbent upon us if we are teaching a first year course to help fill that gap for the benefit of all students, but particularly for the benefit of those students. Uh, we just don't tell students enough how to do law school. And I think we have to do a better job of signaling to students how to do law school. You are exactly right. Um, that's, we have a, a large first-gen population here and a majority-minority student body. And so this year we started um, an optional first-generation boot camp that preceded our orientation. And it was with that in mind, you know, the things that they don't know that they don't know when they start. And yet they're starting an orientation, a regular orientation, all the law students across the country are starting. And some of them have parents who are lawyers and some of them have never had a lawyer that they even knew in person. So it's a, it's a steep learning curve and you're right. I think it's incumbent on us to teach the unwritten rules, as you said, of law school. And I loved that you brought up the table of contents because I think I had been in legal education a decade before that one little nugget of advice was pointed out to me to share with students. And it's brilliant. 
How do I do an outline, professor? Well, you can start with the table of contents. We're going to go through all of these sections. So that's a, a great idea to remind students of that um, resource that they often overlook because they're just following the syllabus. And we, right, we, we, you know, it is very common in the faculty lounge for people to complain the students don't read the syllabus. And it's also very common to complain that they don't see very obvious things in the table of contents. And again, it, you know, it's a sort of, we happen to have at Cleveland Marshall, a very robust program for students in the summer of the sort that you described. Uh, at other schools, some schools have it, some don't. And part of part of it is about what the institution does. Part of it is about what the academic support people do. But part of it is about what the first year professors have to do. It is the job of every first year professor to teach legal analysis as well as to teach their subject matter. And again, it's something as a, a new professor. It's sort of obvious when it's pointed out to a new professor, but it isn't always that obvious until you say to them, you realize that you're doing both things. You realize your professor was doing both of those things in your first year classes. Oh yes, now I see. And that the more conscious you are about what you're trying to do, all things being equal, the better job you'll do. And so does the book also include um, how to consider choosing a textbook, what sorts of things you should look for when you're starting out and, and planning that strategy for your course? That was the first words of the book that I wrote were actually the chapter on casebook selection. And then at some point I said, well, this isn't an article by itself. This isn't a book by itself. And then I filled in from the beginning, from the day you're assigned to teach a class all the way to the end, which is giving feedback on the final exam. But yeah, and that, you know, as I said earlier, um, the new professor section, we just did a webinar on casebook selection. And I'll just say the one thing that isn't obvious to professors choosing a casebook is whether they are a long case or a short case professor. Do you like to get into the background and all the facts and why so-and-so disinherited someone else and sold the farm to someone else? Or do you wanna have a case that demonstrates a rule and you wanna move on to the next hypothetical? And that was something that I didn't see in even the general articles that talked about casebook selection. But there's a whole chapter on the book about that. Um, and we had a panel doing a webinar on it just a couple of weeks ago for AALS. And for the um, strategies and techniques series books that have the subject matter specific teaching advice, um, how do those differ? Are they are they very doctrinally focused, like a, a book that's very much a, a primer on contracts that aligns with the, the casebook that a professor might teach? No, they are they are they are written each by someone in their area, and I think there's 14 of them now, but each one of them is about the pedagogy. It's about the choices you're making. There are three different basic ways of teaching administrative law. Here's this, here's this, and here's where it goes. Or when you're dealing with torts, how are you going to sequence? Are you going to do negligence first? Are you going to do intentional torts? So they're all about teaching advice, and they can be used with any different case book. Um, the most recent one is about diversity, equity, and inclusion, and that one has a very large supplement of materials that people can use in their courses. The other books in the series are subject matter books that assume that a person is already knows something about their subject and has already chosen a book, and, and this is just, here's what to think about when you're teaching that course. 
what a rich resource. Um, I'm excited to learn more about this. And you were speaking with me before we started, and one of the things that uh, is important to you and that you've given a lot more um, intentional thought to is curriculum and uh, decisions about what law school should include in the curriculum. And I wonder if you can expand on that. Okay, there's and, and thank, thank you for asking that. There's two different aspects to it. One is what we should be including in the curriculum that we're not already. And I'll just rattle off a quick list. Um, I wrote a short article based on a pr presentation at the Emory Transactional Conference that negotiation should be a required course in law school. And there's some law schools that maybe make it available to 20 students a year. Um, under, we, a lot of people talk about teaching about artificial intelligence and coding, and we haven't figured out how to teach our students about statistics, which lots of lawyers in lots of areas, let alone policymakers, which many lawyers are, don't know. Data present, visual presentation and data visualization. Public benefits law. Lots of our students are gonna be helping families with Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, very few schools have a course in that, let alone sort of macro areas, policy analysis would be would be one. So one of the one of the things that I've been thinking about when when you know professors get together is where are there, there are some gaps in our curriculum. But the other thing that I've been thinking about is and again, something that I've both learned about and talked about at the Emory Transactional Conference is introducing skills earlier in the curriculum. Now, there are schools that are doing that. And of course, there's always a fight for space in the first year and every school has that debate and you and I can write the script for that debate at every school and just fill in the names of the professors at a given school. But the point that I, the, the regardless of exactly what needs to be in the first year curriculum. My view is that there has to be a different model of what is normal in legal education earlier in students' careers. So if we're doing all doctrinal courses, I'm a doctrinal professor. I love teaching towards contracts property. If we don't introduce a drafting course or a negotiation course or some sort of skills course in the first year, First of all, if we did that, I think students would get a better education. It would be a platform for upper level. There's a whole variety of reasons. But also, it would allow a different group of students to flourish in law school. My wife taught negotiation for several years at several different schools. If I had a dollar for every student who was on law review, who thought that they should get an A in the negotiation course because they've gotten an A in the normal part of law school, what they believe to be the normal part of law school, the doctrinal, the basic kind of stuff. I'd be, I'd be a rich person, I'd be retired, I'd be endowing several chairs at, at my law school. So, you know, we everyone jokes about the fact that some of our most successful graduates were C students. And part of me thinks, well, maybe we should have given those C students, so-called C students, an opportunity to get A's and B's in law school by having things that they would do well on in law school. And so part of this is about 
curriculum design. Part of it is about finding space in the first year. And I'm a big advocate for lag reg in the first year. So I don't, you know, there's, there's only so much space to go around. And I know there's, there's pressures about, about bar preparation, but I think that we have to very consciously consider the message we're sending to our students and what skills they come out with after the first year and how they then perceive everything else in law school as something different than normal law school, as opposed to showing them in the first year, doctrine is important. It's maybe the most important thing, legal analysis, the basic core skills, but there are other things that lawyers do that they will also have to learn. And if we at least put some of those things on the table in the first year, it might broaden their perspective. It might help different students thrive in the first year of law school. It might motivate students who see what lawyers do and therefore give them motivation to do better in their doctrinal courses. So there's just a whole variety of reasons why I think we have to, we have to rethink somewhat the space that's being taken up in the first year and what we could and couldn't be doing, whether it's a separate course, whether it's a module attached to a course, a laboratory section attached to a course, whatever it might be. So you're right. The first thing people will ask is, you know, how can we fit that in? There's no room for that. Our doctrinal courses take everything. Would Are there any doctrinal courses you think would make as much sense in the second year that you would recommend moving so there's more space for the kind of course you're talking about? I have been at schools that experiment with splitting civil procedure into two halves, one half in the second semester, first year. So someone doing an internship, uh, an internship or a summer job knows the basic rules, but then doing jurisdiction second year, I think it is possible to teach property in the second year and no two schools teach and no two professors teach property exactly the same way, which may suggest to us, maybe that's a course that could be left to the second year. At one time, I think Yale didn't even require property, but I'm not gonna go there. Uh, but it may well be that you can, yes, property is a fundamental notion in Anglo-American common law, but I think we can assume the idea of property and teach contracts and torts without necessarily getting into the ins and outs of property. So those are at least two, two of the experiments that I've seen different schools do. So how about crim law? Crim law is interesting. I had a teach it once. Uh, the associate dean came to me and said, you've taught other first year courses. Certainly you can teach criminal law. And my father had given me the bit of advice. He was a solo practitioner. And the advice he gave me was, don't become a criminal lawyer. Many of your clients will be criminals. Um, and I didn't pay a whole lot of attention to criminal law. And I tried to get up to speed by watching court TV. Criminal law, I think a lot of my colleagues think it's torts with jail, but it really is a very different course. It has the statutory aspect to it that may argue for it being in the first year. Could it be held to the second year? Yes, uh, but I think it performs a somewhat different function than contracts property uh, and torts do. So I could, it's something else one we, we could think about. So right there, we have three nominations. And uh, we're not going to have that debate on my faculty again. We had it a few years ago. We added lag rag. Um, 
And for any deans or faculty members listening to this podcast, I would proceed with caution. It's Howard's fault. It was. <laughs> I actually I only asked about crim law because back in 1989, 90, when I was in law school at William and Mary Law School, um, crim law was a second year course. I took it first semester of my second year, and um, I don't know when it switched to first year, but it has been for decades now. And particularly if a school has a leg red course, if you don't have a leg red course, I'd be reluctant to move it. If a school does have, have a leg red course, theoretically that could then be the applied what statutory course and be in the second year. But there's three courses that are possible that someone at some point thought were worthy of were were eligible to be in the second year. And of course, a lot of people think constitutional law should also be in second year, and that's another space that a school can create. Gosh, just in a few minutes, I think we've moved everything to the second year. Let's make the first <laughs> year experiential and really turn everything on its head. <laughs> well, yeah, the, 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 one of my colleagues, when we were debating what should be in the first year and what, what should be in the second year, that colleague said, this should be in the first year because that's the only time that the students are really paying attention. And there is an argument. <laughs> that to is be, the truth. And that's why everyone wants their course in the first year. <laughs> Yes, that is true. Okay, so this has been a lot of fun to envision what could be uh, revised, what a revision could look like. But um, I always wrap up the podcasts by asking my guests what they predict the future of legal education will look like, say, in the coming decade. And then there's a second part to the question, and that is if you think it should look different than it's likely to look in the coming decade. How should it look and why? I think on the teaching front, I think there is gonna be slow and steady changing of how people teach their courses as new people come into the profession. Although there is kind of a counter trend of more and more joint degree PhD people coming into the profession, into teaching, who may or may not be more interested in teaching what lawyers do. In terms of curriculum and the overall school, the irony to me is that what might be the best for providing legal education in an affordable way to, to people who want it to therefore drive down the cost of legal services involves things that don't necessarily make sense for any given school. In the long run, if we had online teaching and MOOCs, which was the big fad of five or 10 years ago, and people thought it was going to change legal ed. So I guess what I think is that there's probably going to be a little more segmentation between schools that emphasize scholarship and emphasize teaching. I think there's going to be more emphasis on preparing lawyers to practice or to assume political or other kinds of leadership positions. And exactly how that's going to come about and how quickly, you know, a few years ago, everyone thought a bunch of law schools would close. And now we have record applications again. A few years ago, everyone thought technology like MOOCs would change everything. It really didn't. Then we were all forced to go online. Who knows whether that will have residual consequences or not. Um, as Yogi Berra said, predicting is very difficult, especially about the future. Um, I think the trends are in the right direction, whether they happen exactly as I want them or not, uh, or would desire them to be, 
is really irrelevant. I just want law schools to think harder about providing a better education and providing an education that in the long run will drive down the cost of legal services and make them more available to more people. And if that happens, even if it happens slowly, it's at least a trend in the right direction. Well, I certainly hope you're right about that. And I thank you for sharing some of the special advice that you give to deans and new professors with us today. Uh, and I certainly look forward to, um, to reading your book, Strategies and Techniques of Law School Teaching, before I return to the faculty. <laughs> and, uh, and thank you very much for what you're doing to train the next generation of law school professors. Thanks for having me today. This has been another episode of EdUp Legal with your host, Patty Roberts. EdUp Legal is part of the EdUp Experience podcast network, bringing you the brightest and most influential minds across higher education and beyond. Here at EdUp, we make education your business.